You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. We're beginning today a new sermon series. It's called, Who is Jesus? And, of course, this is the subject of the whole Bible. Oftentimes we think of the Gospels. But we're going to focus on a letter that was written, uh, we call the, the Epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, because unlike the Gospels that give us pictures of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, the Epistle to the Hebrews gives us uh, pictures of what Jesus is doing today in his heavenly ministry. It's pretty cool. And uh, each week, we're going to look at one of the images that this writer gives us of Jesus. We're going to get to know Jesus better. Now, my mother-in-law right now is um, with her head down in Florida in the midst of uh, Hurricane Irma. And my wife, she's okay, by the way. We've heard from her already this morning. But my wife went and visited her this summer. When Anne came back, she had a fistful of photos. And they were old family photos, back generations, actually, old black and whites. And I had seen pictures of these people before, but I'd never seen these particular pictures. And as I looked at these pictures, I felt more connected to her family. And my hope for you and for me is as we look at these pictures in the letter to the Hebrews, that we'll feel more connected uh, to Jesus because we'll see him in fresh light, maybe in ways that you haven't seen him before. And uh, we're going to start today with the first image that we get in the book, and it's the image of a pioneer. Pioneer. Actually, in the song we just heard, it was translated founder. That's the same word. Sometimes it's author. Uh, sometimes it's captain. Different translations in uh, different Bibles. It's a really rich term. I, wanna, I want you to be able to see Jesus as this, as a pioneer today. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, we got you covered. There's a black book on the rack in front of you. Please pull it out because I want to read the text aloud together as a community. And if you're able, would you please stand? We're reading Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 10 through 15, it's on page 971 of the Pew Bible. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. This is a rich, please keep your Bible open. I want to walk through some of this. This is very rich. This picture of Jesus, God, flesh and blood human as well. He's the pioneer 
of our salvation. Never been anyone like him, never ever will be anyone like him. Now, what does this word mean, pioneer? When I hear the word pioneer, I start to think of covered wagons. But that's really not what would have come to mind in the first century uh, in this context. And I think um, possibly the best way to translate this word is champion, champion. The Greek word here is a combination of the word for first and leader, first and leader. This is, uh, has heroic overtones. This is somebody who arrives scene of a crisis first, like a first responder, but that's not all. This person takes control of the crisis and leads people through it. And he changes the conditions because of his heroic acts. This this is the pioneer, champion. We might say game changer, first responder, chief. Um, I I, I think of the fire department in New York City in 9-11, you know, celebrate that tomorrow. These firefighters went right into these burning towers that were about to collapse heroically. First responders, they went right in. No regard to their own life, brought people out safely. This is a picture of a pioneer. This is a picture of Jesus. Um, You know, one of the most uh, foremost experts on the letter of the Hebrews is... um, was a former professor at SPU, actually, JJ, your, your alma mater, William Lane. Yeah, and he argues very uh, articulately that we ought to call this uh, person a champion. Because he says in the Greek context, you, you, they had in the back of their minds Heracles. Heracles, Romans called him Hercules. He went down to Hades on behalf of a friend of his who had died, and he wrestles with death. And his friend is sprung free. So... Uh, that, that's a good picture of a, of a pioneer in the Greek consciousness. But uh, there's also a kind of a biblical J- Jewish context as well. And what comes, ought to come to our mind is David and Goliath. Because really the sense of champion you get here is a sense of somebody who engages in what in the ancient world they called representational combat. So you remember David and Goliath, the story? You've got the Philistines on one side of the valley. You've got the Israelites on the other side of the valley. And the Philistines send out their representative. And he's Goliath, of course. The text says he's like 10 feet tall. And he's covered in bronze. And he's mean as could be. He's sneering and snorting, you know. And he's, and he's taunting. Every day he comes out and he says, what do you got? You know? and, 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 and no one on the Israelite side wants to come out and represent Israel. They don't, they don't have a champion, actually, on Israel. Until the scrawny little baggage carrier, you know, the little shepherd boy, David, with his slingshot, uh, he comes out. <clears throat> And, uh, and Goliath says to him, hey, here's the deal. If I win this fight that you and I are going to have, then we win, the Philistines, the whole, everybody's represent. He's a champion for the, for the whole. And um, <clears throat> you will be our slaves, you and your people. And, but if you win, then we will be your slaves. So it's, they're, they're fighting for freedom from slavery. That's something to notice. And, and, and taunting as a part of that, too, where this champion comes out and has words to provoke another champion to step forward. And, of course, you know the story, and uh, it's an awesome story. David does his thing, and it's not so much that he's such a good shot with a slingshot, although he is. It's really that he has faith in the power of God. And God accomplishes this great victory. And that day, the Israelites will go home a free people. Give a really good picture of, of what the writer of the Hebrews says Jesus is like. He's a representative champion. 
before us. Now, I'm going to come back to what he's done, but let's ask the question, first of all, who is his opponent? Who is Jesus up against, right? Um, who's in the left corner if he's in the right corner as they come out? And so the text tells us in verse 14, let's go back to it. Uh, the second half of the, the, the text there says that Jesus came against the one who has the power of death. The one who has the power of death. That's, that's the opponent here. Now, there are really two things that might have come to the reader's mind here. I want to take a second to think about each of them. The first one is the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor would probably be the most immediate, life-threatening agent for these readers. And let me just pause for a second and ask you, what has the power to provoke your fear right now? Just have you think about your life and your aspirations and and think, what, you know, when you think about somebody who has the power of death in every sense, what is it? Who is it? Okay, for them, it was the Roman emperor. Um, we don't know a lot about this book, but just quick intro, since we're going to be looking at it for several weeks. Um, the author's not named, but he's clearly somebody who's extremely well-educated. He uses the, the finest Greek in the whole New Testament. I think it could be a, Apollo, uh, great teacher, Apollo. We read about him in the book of Acts, but we don't know. Who's the audience? Again, we don't know. But if you study the book carefully, you'll notice several things. Probably a house church in Rome, which means a group of believers, about 12, 14. We think of it as a few of our small groups gathering together. They have a Jewish background, that's clear, but they've come to believe that Jesus is their, the Messiah for the whole world. But they're in crisis. They're afraid. There is somebody who holds over their heads the power of death. Now, we think this is most likely Nero. There's evidence in the book that several years ago, this little house church experienced persecution. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them lost status. They were publicly shamed. Uh, some uh, even killed. Now, we know that in AD 49, Claudius, the emperor at that time, issued an edict that expelled all Jews, and Christians included, because they didn't know how to distinguish, from Rome. Jews were persecuted at that time. So likely, this little community was disrupted and, and, and suffered persecution at that time. And there's a sense that now that some period of time has passed, and this next generation, who didn't have first-hand experience of Jesus, are again being persecuted. And we know that in AD 64, the great fires of Rome were blamed on Christians by Nero. And he begins lighting Christians in his garden on stakes. Okay, And so it's, it's likely that this, read, this writer is from somewhere outside of Rome, possibly even outside of Italy, saying, do not lose heart. This, this letter is an exhortation to people who are at risk of giving up their faith. Do not lose heart in the midst of crisis. So yeah, it could be that Nero is the guy who has the power of death, except the writer adds this little appositional phrase. Back to verse 14, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He goes, actually, I don't want to give Nero too much credit for this. He goes, what I'm really thinking about is the devil. Okay, now, we're like modern people, and we go, wait a minute, wait a minute, we don't still believe in the devil, do we? And I, you know, the answer is no, most of us don't believe in the devil. But I want just to take a moment here to ask you to think about whether we're missing something when we think about evil today as modern people. Because in the ancient world, the devil was a representative of evil uh, personified. Actually, the word for devil just means opponent or adversary. 
Okay, there's a Columbia professor uh, named Andrew Delbanco who is not a, he's not a Christian by profession, to my knowledge, he considers himself an agnostic, but Columbia, very sophisticated guy, but he has written this book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. He's making a point. I wonder if with our denial of evil in a personified sense in the way that they used to believe in it, that we maybe don't really have the capacity to understand evil. Of course, we see it everywhere, but do, if we don't really know what it is, do we understand it? And maybe even worse, is it possible that we might just be complicit with it? That we might actually be agents in some way of evil. So Del Banco writes, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. This is a challenge. How do we understand evil? This spring... Uh, NPR reporter Scott Simon sat with his daughters and they watched together footage of the chemical devastation, the warfare in Syria. And they were horrified, as as we all were when we saw those pictures. Listen to how Scott Simon talked about this in one of his columns recently. He said, we watched in silence. I've covered a lot of wars, but could think of nothing to say to make any sense. Finally, one of our daughters asked, why would anyone do that? I still avoid saying evil as a reporter, but as a parent, I've grown to feel it may be important to tell children about evil. As we struggle to explain cruel and incomprehensible behavior, they may not see just in history, but in our own times. See? And then Scott Simon in this column remembered the Canadian peacekeeper who had been dispatched by the United Nations in order to bring peace after the genocide in Rwanda. And this Canadian peacekeeper had told Scott Simon that he had come to believe in the devil as a result of this mission. He said, in fact, I have negotiated with him. I've shaken hands with him. One of the evenings in my office, and this is what Scott Simon closed his column with. He said, one of the evenings in my office, this peacekeeper said, I was looking out of the window and my senses felt that something was there that shifted me. I think that evil and good are playing themselves out and God is monitoring and looking at how we respond to it. Interesting. Well, whether God is monitoring uh, uh, good and evil... I'm not sure so much as this text tells us he is overturning the power of evil. He has turned it into an adversary, and in Jesus Christ, he has confronted it as a champion, as a representative of humanity, flesh and blood. This is the good news of the passage. But I want to just pause here long enough to understand something that's really insightful in the text that we shouldn't miss Look at verse 15. He says that this pioneer has come to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Think about that. He's making this assertion that our lives are distorted in some way by the fear of death. Now, he's not saying by death. He's saying by the fear of death. And he's not talking about, obviously, the immediate persecution here because he says all their lives. And he's not talking about a conscious fear of death because a lot of us would say, oh, I'm not really afraid of death. He goes, yeah, but there are, of course, times in your life where you might be afraid of death, many times when you won't be afraid of death. So it's not conscious because I'm talking about the kind of fear of death that shapes your life all of your life. 
And so this is, this is interesting. And again, difficult for modern people to understand because we have learned in our culture uh, how to push death out of our consciences. Like we're really good at that. Like no other culture in the history of the world, we have distanced ourselves from the reality of, of death, right? Why? Why don't we think about death? Well, uh, a number of reasons. Because we think it might hurt. We're afraid of losing control. We don't want to be separated from loved ones. We don't want to know what happens next. But note, again, there's a difference between pushing your consciousness of death away and actually pushing death away. And there is a reality in our lives. And the, the text is suggesting that even the effort to push death from our consciousness may drive and distort our lives. Just think about how we protect our young people today. And I think it's our young people that are most likely to say, oh yeah, I'm not afraid of death, right? Particularly you college students or young adults. But I just wonder if maybe that's because our parents have worked so hard to insulate you. I mean, you can't even cross the street, you know, with a written note from your mom and dad at age 18 these days, right? I mean, this is why you young adults like X games and extreme games. It's like people facing actual danger, <laughs> even though they've got all the pads on, right? It's still like exciting to see, you know, real risk in the world because you've been so isolated. But it's not just young adults. I think all of us, I mean, think about it. What is this preoccupation that we have with appearing young? or feeling young? How much time do we spend managing our diet or exercise routines, hoping to push back time? Or how about this need to have a family and send something into the next generation to be survived by progeny? Or this incessant need to accumulate wealth and power to mitigate against this gnawing sense of vulnerability that we all feel in the world? Or the need to validate ourselves through romance, to be a hero in the eyes of somebody, or to have ex uh, as many entertainment experiences as we possibly can. We call this the bucket list, right? Because life is short, so you, might as you have to do as many different things as you can, and that starts to shape and drive our lives as well. What about to work really hard, to excel in a career, to make a name for yourself so that somebody, maybe somebody other than your grandchildren will remember your name? All of these and so many other ways are ways in which we're driven to find, to, 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 to push death away. I like the way W.H. Auden said it in a poem. He said, happy the hare at morning, for she cannot read the hunter's waking thoughts. Lucky the leaf, unable to predict the fall. Lucky indeed the rampant suffering, suffocating uh, jelly burgeoning in pools, lapping the grits of the desert. But what shall man do? What, who can whistle tunes by heart, nose to the bar when death shall cut him short like the cry of the shearwater? What can he do but defend himself from his knowledge? Some of you know the book, uh, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, Pulitzer Prize-winning book in the 1970s. And his whole thesis was that we spend all of our lives responding, whether we know it or not, to the reality that someday we'll die. And it shapes our lives in ways that are kind of unfortunate. Recently, uh, more research has been done to actually validate this hypothesis. And some of you may have seen at Town Hall just last year, three psychologists came publishing their findings in a book called The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life. And they're validating Ernest Becker's assertion that we deny death and that this is what really drives our lives. They show, for example, that when people are reminded of their mortality, judges impose penalties that are nine times more severe. Nine times. Uh, when reminded of their mortality, voters are more susceptible to charismatic political candidates. 
When reminded of their mortality, people increasingly relate to those who are different than them through stereotypes. Here's Becker again. We build character and culture in order to shield ourselves from the devastating awareness of underlying helplessness and the terror of our inevitable death. Wow. He's saying our character and culture is built as a response to the fear of death. Well, this has been a fun Sunday morning. Um, (laughs) Here, look, that's just, I just want... I know we don't think the devil, we don't think of death as modern people, but I want to tell you, just because you don't think about it doesn't, mean it doesn't affect your life. That's what this text is saying. The fear of death is there. And it's real, it shapes our lives in ways that we don't necessarily want. But here's the point. The good news is we have a pioneer who has overcome not just death, but the fear of death. Okay? So with the remainder of my time, I want to just share two more things, and that's the great claim and a great implication that follows from it this picture of a pioneer. First, the great claim is this. As a pioneer slash champion, Jesus makes it possible to live with freedom. Jesus makes it possible, because he's a pioneer, to live with freedom. Now, that is also claimed by the text. Uh, Notice in verse 10, it says he's bringing many children to glory. He doesn't mean he's trying to get many children to heaven, not here. Glory here is... um, about humanity. I don't have time to go into it, but he's referring to Psalm 8. This whole section is a meditation on Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist says, what is man that that should have such regard for him? You crown him with glory. See, so the pioneer is trying to get people to glory. What he's trying to do is actually restore to us our native humanity, the fullness of our humanity, the freedom of our humanity made in the image of a sovereign God. We are meant to live sovereign lives, free inside the creation. That's our glory. That's the gift God has given us. And Jesus is trying to restore that to us. And he does it by overcoming death, by defeating death through death, verse 14. So just picture again the battlefield. Now it's a cosmic battlefield. And on the one side, we have the forces of death. And Satan steps forward, and he's taunting, just like a great Goliath. I don't know if he's 10 feet tall and covered in bronze. And he says, you're going to die. You're going to die. And then from heaven, though, the Son of God and Son of Man steps forward, representative of his Father in heaven and representative of all human beings. And he says, not so fast. And they engage in combat with one another. And instead of Jesus killing Satan, the devil, the opponent, the adversary, he allows the adversary to kill himself. This is the greatest judo move in the history of the cosmos. Because what happens when, when Jesus allows the adversary to take his life, then Jesus knows that the adversary will have no claim on your life. When one who has never sinned gives his life for all who have, then the, the claim that Satan has to kill, to taunt with the fear of death is immediately evaporated. So you may remember the stone table in the story of Aslan when the white witch kills Aslan, the lion. Uh, the deeper magic opens up because when one who has never sinned is slain, then all who have sinned are given life. This is the picture of Jesus, the great pioneer. Now, he's the first of something new, new life, the new creation, and he leads his people through the crisis into these new conditions where death no longer has its sting. But 
That's the great claim that Jesus makes it possible to live with freedom. We need to talk also about, secondly, the great implication, because the fact is just because he's made it possible doesn't mean it actually is happening in your life. We must respond. We must listen to the voice of the pioneer champion. We have to hear him speaking. Otherwise, what we'll hear is the continuing taunts of our adversary. He still taunts you to this day. By the way, the devil is rarely referred to in the Bible, but when he is referred to, he's referred to as a fallen angel. Angel means messenger, and he's speaking. He's whispering in people's ears. And he has two ways of influencing, through temptation or through condemnation. You're going to hear words of taunts from the evil one, temptation or condemnation. That voice that sometimes sounds like you isn't always necessarily original to you. This is the thought. And when you hear a voice of temptation, it's leveraging the power of death. When you hear a voice of temptation, think of it this way. Something inside of you is saying, unless I have that, I'm going to die. Right? I mean, that chocolate chip cookie or Kate's cinnamon rolls. You're like, oh, we've got to go upstairs because without that, I will just die. That's what temptation feels like. Anyways, right? That's the emotional experience. And, 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 and that's... <clears throat> So, that, so that the other thing is condemnation. Condemnation is when you hear something inside of you that says, because you did that, you deserve to die. Right? It's everything from hitting a bad golf ball and saying to yourself, you jerk, to being deeply aware of your, your human failure and the shame of the life that you've lived or something that you've done. And then something inside of you leverages all of that and says, you deserve to die. Condemnation. See? The, those, those are the messages that we get. And living with those messages in our lives will keep us living in a prison whose door has already been open. We are free, but we can stay trapped in these messages. On the other hand, if we will just change the station now and listen not any longer to the taunts of a defeated devil or opponent or adversary and start listening to the speech of our champion, we will begin to live with freedom. Notice here that the passage in its center is quoting Jesus. See, this is the very heart of it. I, if I had another hour, and I, I don't, I would, I would walk you through the implications of these quotes in details. Jesus is speaking here. Those of you who had red letter Bibles, those verses should be read. Verses uh, uh, 12 and 13 are the words of Jesus. See, verse, back up a little bit, verse 13, uh, 11. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them, that's you, brothers and sisters, saying, so here's what Jesus is saying, and there are two quotations, both from the Old Testament. In the first one, he's essentially saying, uh, I have died for them. He's speaking to his Father in heaven. He's speaking as a son of Adam, as a human being, representative. These are my brothers, these are my sisters. And he's saying to heaven, I have died for them. I've died for them, he's saying. So this cuts against condemnation. So there's no condemnation for them because I died for them. See, that's what he's saying. He's quoting Psalm 22, by the way, which is a picture of crucifixion thousand years before it was even invented. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry of Psalm 22. Jesus quotes it on the cross. You know that it's the cry of human despair, absolute dereliction, abandonment. It's life at its worst. Jesus knows it. He's been there. He's entered into it for you. But there's no condemnation for those in that situation. Then the other quote comes from Isaiah 8. And in essence, it says, you will live with me. If in the first case, it's a voice of a human speaking to the divine, here it's the voice of the divine speaking to the human. 
It's the Son of God speaking to daughters and sons of Adam, saying, you will live with me. This confronts temptation. I'm going to give you life and life abundantly. I'm not withholding anything from you. So in the first case, I'm not ashamed of you. In the second case, I'm not withholding anything from you. So condemnation and temptation just begin to evaporate. Note that this requires a God-man. It's a human child in the first case speaking to a divine parent, and it's a divine parent speaking to human children in the second case. This is representative combat, your pioneer. You choose who you listen to. I got a letter recently from the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. If you, if you can imagine growing up, you think your family's messed up? Imagine growing up in the third generation of a Holocaust survivor. She said, George, I, I have no idea how to let myself be loved. She wrote, I would reject every compliment, dismiss internally, and even get mad. All she could hear was the messages that come from the pit of hell. But Jesus has been getting her attention, she tells me, drawing her to faith recently. And now she says, I came to the end of myself, which forced me to begin with God on a different level. I was able to be filled with Jesus' unconditional love and acceptance of me and began to be able to receive from my siblings in faith and share more of myself authentically. This is what she calls the very painful work of healing. It's about changing the station and giving up those messages that say you stink and embracing those messages that say, I'm not ashamed of you. You're my beloved child. To overhear Jesus commending you to the Father, saying, this is my sister. When you're afraid, to say, this is my brother. When you've done something really bad, that's to hear the gospel. And that's to begin to enter into the freedom for which our champion gave his life. Well, people who listen to their pioneer will live with freedom. They'll build, to borrow Becker's phrase one last time, new character and new culture. And it's because we won't be living out of fear anymore. It's because we'll be living out of love. Not fear of death, but love of life. And love for the one who gave his life to give us life. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a beautiful, mysterious conversation at the heart of the cosmos. It's out of that conversation that all of creation came to be, and it's out of that conversation now that we find eternal life and a new way to live. We pray that you'll open our ears, minds, and hearts to what you are saying is the truth about ourselves, and we pray that when we are tempted to believe the taunts of the enemy, we would tell him just to go where he's destined to go anywhere, anyways. Make us a people who lives with great authentic boldness in the world today, loving others just the way you loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.